Welcome to the My Why Podcast, where educational storytellers Jesse Mann and Kristen Travers discuss identity-defining moments with special guests. Inspiration ensues. Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another Wednesday or whatever day you are joining us here on the My Why Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We want to start today by thanking the Lloydminster Region Health Foundation for sponsoring this episode. They want to send out a big shout out for you, the listeners, and for residents in Lloydminster and beyond for the support that they have shown the foundation that allows them to continue to provide frontline workers and patients with the needed resources during this time. So if you are looking for ways to help out more, please consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Fund. They will continue to support all the frontline workers during this crisis and during this time. And we'll put up all kinds of links and more information in the show notes for this cast. So today we are talking to an amazing healthcare provider, literally on the forefront of COVID-19 crisis, living in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, She's coming to us through Zoom. So please forgive the audio. Melissa is originally from Canada and received her Bachelor of Nursing in 2000. She spent the next five years traveling around the U.S. as a travel registered nurse from New Mexico to California to Arizona before settling down in Phoenix, where she is currently a manager of a pulmonary unit in a large Phoenix hospital. Melissa is also near and dear to me because she is my family and she is my sister-in-law. So thank you very much, Melissa, for agreeing to be on the podcast with us. Thanks for inviting me. You are so busy and giving up so much time right now. So we really do, you know, we extra appreciate um, everything that you're doing, but also taking this time where, you know, we're probably pretty sure you should be spending it um, relaxing and trying to get some downtime and some self-care in there. So, you know, extra special thanks. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. All right. So let's just dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to this, um, to this profession and, and into the healthcare field? Um, honestly, I didn't know I wanted to be a nurse till one day my mom said, Hey, cause I couldn't decide what I was doing. And she said, Hey, when you were a little girl, you always dressed up as a nurse for career day. Why don't you try nursing? So I said, okay, I'll try. I got into school right away. Luckily back in those days, it was easy to get into nursing school. I think it's a little different now. So got into nursing school. First day I spent in the hospital, I did absolutely nothing but a bed bath and called her. So excited. I loved it. And then that just kind of took from there. Uh, Graduated in 2000. And then I knew I wanted to travel just to see what was kind of out there in in the United States. So all my travel nursing and time in med search, just med search, I never spent any time in anything, any other specialties, um, just kind of led me here. And then it just progressed from being a travel nurse on this unit to now I'm uh, the manager over 87 employees. It's a pulmonary geriatric med search floor. Uh, very busy on the general every day. And then now, especially, it's a, it's a different kind of busy right now. Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Melissa and I are both nurses. So we usually go in the corner and talk about nurse stuff, talk about <laughs> medical stuff, and our family just kind of tunes us out. So I'm very happy that you're here. Um, so you manage a pulmonary unit. And we are in the middle of a global pandemic that we have never had in our lifetime. Can you tell me how this um, has changed in your unit and how this has changed your job? Yes. So um, I'm going to say just over a month ago, um, we're getting ready for spring break. My daughter was off. Um, I had the week PTO. The week before this happened, uh, we were just working normal. I was hiring travel nurses and trying to get people in because we were so full with patients. We were 
uh, offering staff extra money to come in and work because we were short. Luckily, we every day we managed to get to, to maintain our ratio, which was five to one um, for nurses, 10 to one for PCAs, and 20 to one for our secretaries. Um, but every day we'd be calling anybody who liked the extra shifts to come in because we just didn't have enough staff to cover all the beds that we had, all the patients that wanted to get in the beds or needed to be in the beds. So our census at that time is about was about two times what it is now. Wow. Um, so that week, when it all kind of started, I'll say for us here in Arizona was March, uh, around the beginning of March, around the 10th or 12th of March was kind of when things started. We were getting to see a couple of patients come in here and there. They were just placing them randomly in beds, like rule out, rule out, rule outs. There might've been two on my unit at that time. So the And you're talking about week, positive patients. Yeah, we'll rule out COVID patients. Okay. I'm not sure exactly how many of those would have been positive now because I took that week to spend the time with my daughter. And then uh, when I returned to work, we had created a separate unit. So that <laughs> sounds complicated, but on our hospital, we have like five med surge units. So we have like oncology, we have bariatric endocrine, we have ortho urology, we have pulmonary med surge. We have liver kidney. So the oncology unit was only taking up about 20 beds. And because things had slowed down so much, I had 20 beds available on my unit. So we moved them, literally moved floors from the fifth floor up to the eighth floor. And they relocated their unit onto my unit. And we used their unit for COVID patients at that time because there was enough to warrant having 20 beds available for these patients who were coming in that were being seen for possible uh, coronavirus. Right. So at that time we were taking turns, we'll say all of the med surge staff um, were aware that this floor was going to be COVID. And if we went there, you know, we're being provided obviously all the PPE that we need. Everybody knows that these rooms that are assigned are assigned to rule out patients um, and possibly positive ones. And what we did to kind of even out the assignments was we had a rotation started where one day it would be, say, the eighth floor and seventh floor would staff it. And the next, or, next day would be the sixth and the fifth floor would staff it. So it wasn't like one unit had more staff being exposed to these patients than another unit. But when things started happening with the discussion around PPE and do we have enough PPE to be able to continue to care for these patients and provide safety to the staff. Then it became apparent that rotating 330 employees through a unit um, in a week was not a way to save PPE. So, so for the listeners, um, PPE is personal protective equipment. Oh, thank um, you. Yep. That's, that's okay. Um, <laughs> So that's, you know, masks and, and gloves and all of the equipment needed to make sure that your healthcare providers are, are you know, safe and protected and as well as the patients that we're not transmitting diseases and viruses around. So, sorry. Right. Yeah. No, that's okay. So I'll just expand on that a little bit too. So PPE for people that are uh, caring for possible COVID patients or positive COVID patients is a droplet mask with a face shield a bouffant or like a hat over their hair, um, a gown, gloves, usually double gloves because it's easier than to do things in the room and when you're caring for the patients, and then uh, booties. 
over your shoes. Um, all of this is disposable for the most part. The mask that you hear a lot of people seeing that we could be out of is the N95 mask, which is kind of for a, like a respirator type of mask. That is not something you need specifically for every COVID patient. Um, because we know that COVID is in the nasal cavity, deep in the lungs, it's a respiratory disease. And lots of times, unless you're digging really deep into those lungs to get things out, it's just droplet. Like if you sneeze or cough, you have six feet that it will travel in the air before it goes to the ground. If it's deeper than that, it stays in the air because it's lighter than that. And it can be inhaled by other sources. But if you have droplet, you just need a surgical mask. You don't need this special respiratory N95 mask. That, I don't want to get too complicated, I guess, but the N95 is for when they're in the ICU and they're intubated or they require more respiratory treatment than what you would get um, normally or even getting like a nebulizer or an aerosolized treatment, then you require an N95 because yeah, that's so like the, the public more. around, you know, everyday citizens around in the public just yeah. probably need a, a regular mask. Not yes, a surgical mask is what we've been yeah. calling it. Yeah, just a surgical mask. So right. that will protect you from inhaling what people are coughing and it'll also protect them from what you're coughing or sneezing. Perfect. Right, so when my staff goes in the, into a COVID room, um, because none of these patients are getting the aerosolized treatments on my unit, they don't need um, an N95. We have it for comfort for them, um, but they don't necessarily need it. To get back to the original point, <laughs> we have 330 employees in the med surge group, we'll call it. And on my floor, I have 87 employees. So uh, the powers that be decided that um, we should only cohort, cohort the coronavirus patients, whether they're positive or rule outs on one unit. Uh, lucky me, pulmonary, so we get them. We own them now. Um, it was very difficult to deliver that news to staff who thought it, they were just taking their turn and rolling, you know, through the other unit like every other one. So there was a lot of questions, obviously a lot of concerns, a lot of fear around that. But um, within a day, we had moved the oncology floor back to their floor, and then we had moved all of the corona patients up to our floor at that time, which there was only six of them that day that we made the move and only one had been confirmed positive at that time. Well, Melissa, you talked a, like a little bit about the evolution of how, you know, things have changed according to, you know, what you've learned and, and things like that. Can you, do you remember when you first heard about the virus were, how have your views kind of evolved and changed from the first time you heard this to now obviously manning the ship on this ward and kind of being <laughs> the go-to? Right, that's a great question. So when I first heard this, I remember going into, I stop at our house supervisor's office every day on my way into work. I usually get there around six o'clock. And uh, I remember talking to one of the nursing supervisors about it. And we said, we both agreed that, why is everybody so up in arms about this coronavirus? Like, there are so many people that die of the flu each year. What makes this any more special than SARS or MERS or anything that came before this? Like, what we, we kind of dismissed it, honestly, because we didn't know the whole truth, I guess, at the time. So um, much like 
most people, we went by what was delivered to us, either through media or through our leaders. And, um, and we didn't really think a lot more than the flu, like how you might treat a flu. Right. Yeah. So now, right. obviously, we know a lot more about that. Uh, it's taken a long time because that was back, I want to say that was in February that that discussion was had. So it evolved slowly but quickly, it feels like, that makes sense. Um, we didn't hear anything about it, and then all of a sudden we hear a little bit about it, and then there was just kind of a lull for some time um, where you hear just rumorings, but nothing that was substantial, nothing we had seen, nothing we could like put a finger on. And then obviously that first, second week in March is when we really saw it coming to us and seeing actual people with signs and symptoms and even diagnosis of that. So obviously our views changed quite a bit when we could see that and see the numbers in New York, especially, I think is what's so scary because it's far from here, but still close to home. So can you share with that, with us a little bit about what it's like working on your unit, what your staff is feeling, what the overall energy is like? Um, yeah, actually, I should send you a couple of pictures and I might have a video to share. Um, sure. The staff on my unit have been amazing. Um, I will say that I did have about three employees who left um, the hospital, the company completely because of coronavirus. Uh, two of them were new employees. They hadn't been there a, lot, a long time. So their investment in their work family or the unit hadn't been able to build yet. So they left in fear of coronavirus, which is something that we're, we are definitely exposed to daily. Um, and then one other uh, young nurse who's been here for about a year, uh, her family had really wanted her to step away from that. So of course we support their decisions as hard as, it, as, hard as that is to make that decision. It's also really hard to, to be willing to work face to face and on the front lines. Um, Initially, there was pushback, uh, which was obviously to be expected. Well, why, you know, why do we have this? Why can't the other people rotate through here? Why does it have to be our staff? And the conversation from our point, what we were discussed with, was again, well, we need to conserve our PPE. We need to limit the amount of exposure that we have, number of people that are exposed to patients with this, possibly with this disease um, or with this infection. Uh, so a lot of questions, a lot of things that we had to learn and, and go, but within, I'm going to take a guess, probably four or five days, um, they have, the staff literally turned it around to the point that they, um, have owned it. They are proud of it. They get support from, um, their families, the hospital, uh, community like the community itself is just so supportive we've gotten um meals and congratulations and thank yous and um i can't talk about how much food has come through that unit since we started this um but just so much like one of my nurses lydia we the hospital had been supplying uh scrubs so they wouldn't have to wear their own scrubs they could wear hospital supplied but every hospital in phoenix was doing the same thing and so the company who provides the scrubs is not our own hospital. It's a separate contracted company and they ran out. 
So now we couldn't supply them with scrubs from the hospital anymore. So we let everybody wear, you know, if you have maybe some from school or you had some that you had from another job that were a different color, because we're color coded. So um, we were specific to nurses, we wear navy blue, but we were like, you can just wear your own. You can wear other scrubs, it's okay. They don't have to be specifically navy blue or seal blue for PCAs. So Lydia put out a call to help on her Facebook and she, was donated a hundred scrub sets from her sister's dental school. Wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's amazing. So she brought them in one day. We have pictures with her and, and some of the other staff. And now we've got a whole program about like, uh, we've got an office where they're set up. They're sized. <laughs> they're not color coded, but they're sized. And uh, the nurses can go in there, pick out, bring, you know, when you get in, in the morning, you change into scrubs that have been donated. And then they have a laundry rotation list that people will take them home and launder them and bring them back. Uh, Tide cleaners offer to launder uh, healthcare workers for free. So um, they're bringing them there. I bought some laundry bags to throw them in. If people didn't want to take their own, their own scrubs in their own bag, they have a different laundry bag to put them in. Um, yeah, there's just, it's a lot like people who are friends of friends offering to bring food like every Thursday night, one of my night just girls, her friend brings in food every Thursday. This is his third week. His truck got stolen. One time he was stocking it up to bring here, um, oh, wow. but still came back, but still came back <laughs> and still brought the food. It was right. amazing. Yeah. It sounds like you have a very supportive team and a very supportive community that rallies around you. Oh, yes. Yeah, we are. Like I said, the staff have really just took it on and owned it, you know, very proud of it. Like when we have people floating to our unit when we don't have enough staff or because our census is low, they're low censusing some people. Sometimes people will be put on call by request. Then our staff still says, no, put them on the pods that are not COVID and we'll stay on the COVID pods. Like they literally own it. It's, it's theirs. It's wow. like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, they really stick that. That's something I think we're seeing. It doesn't seem to matter what community or where, I mean, all across North America, all across the world. It's amazing to see communities rally behind, you know, the healthcare workers and behind small business and behind mm -hmm. the other. You know, I hope that that is a lesson, you know, we learn in terms of just being there and showing up for each other and, and that kind of thing. So obviously your team and, and community um, like you said, is owning it. And I, I love that language that you're using. How are your, how are your patients doing and how are some of those positive cases doing in the hospital? And what are you seeing with the, the different symptoms? So, um, so the symptoms are interesting because it's much like you could probably think about any disease that we know and people who are of different ages that may get it. We'll say like a pneumonia or something, for example, cause this is very similar to a pneumonia. Um, a 32-year-old man could get it, but also could an 81-year-old woman. Um, and some of them need oxygen. Some of them don't. Uh, some of them are coughing a lot. Some of them are not. Some of them are uh, alert and oriented. Some of them are not. Uh, some of them spend a long time in the ICU, and some of them don't. So it's really varied. I've seen quite a few people who have been um, in, the, in the ICU then downgraded to med surge and be discharged to home. So we've had some really great success stories. 
people are uh, getting great treatment. The ICU is doing fantastic things with them. Um, the daily updates that we have, like I was saying with the, um, we have a list of patients and we know who is, who are we waiting on a test to return positive or negative. The doctors that we are in discussion with every day, if we're waiting on a test, most times they'll say, here's what we think is happening. If this comes back negative, because there's some false negatives um, to this, then they look at the diagnosis, the symptoms, the what's happening with that patient, their age obviously comes into play, what their chest x-ray looks like. And given all of that, then they'll decide if this test comes negative, do we need another one? Or are we good to send them out? Because there's another etiology for their symptoms. Uh, we have pulmonology in there. We have infectious disease in there. We have case managers, nurses, Palm fellows, met hospitalists, like there's just multiple, multiple people involved in these calls and everybody has such individual yet great insight into what they've seen and how their predictions are, are coming down. Uh, one of the leaders on it talks daily to a group of physicians in New York. So um, unfortunate for you for New York, but fortunate for us, they're about two weeks ahead of where we are. So what they're learning now and teaching us now is something they wish they would have known weeks ago. Right. Yeah. Uh, are patients are, are alert and oriented though. Like for the most part, unless they have a baseline of confusion, they're alert, they're oriented. They will self prone. Proning is a big, big thing. Um, Can you explain to that? Uh, explain what right. that means to the listeners? Sure. So proning, normally when you're laying in a hospital bed, you're sitting up, maybe the head of the bed is up, you're sitting up watching TV, eating your lunch, we'll call it, for example. Um, but proning is laying the bed flat, setting up pillows along the side and laying your arms out to the side perpendicular to your body and face down. So what that does is it helps move the oxygen in your lungs in a different pattern than when you're just sitting up all the time. So it creates uh, clearer spaces and better places for the oxygen to, to get into your lungs and to oxygenate your body. So um, it doesn't just always go to the base of your lungs like when you're sitting up or standing up. And so Melissa, what are some of those lessons you are learning from working with the different doctors and healthcare professionals from, you know, from New York? <laughs> she talks with them every night and then she tells us what's been working well over there and what hasn't proning obviously was the, is one of the biggest lessons I think that we have learned from talking to her. Another thing is the whole medication. I can never say the word of that, that hydrochloroquine. They are not big proponents of that medication. Well, we I just talked to a, an ICU doctor and, and honestly, there's no evidence behind any medication, right? Like there's no, no. So we can't, we can't be a big proponent of anything right now unless That's right. we get some evidence behind it, right? Then the media, of course, it's always media, um, has blown it up to be this great drug, but it's really not. It's really not effective. And you can't predict what's going to be good when you have a very small sample size and a very small amount of time to prove that something's going to work. The, the way this virus has spread and gone so fast, there's no way that you could get clinical trials to substantiate any form of medication to be effective in this at, right. this at this point we know six months or nine months down the road um 
that could be different because they are starting studies and they are starting new drugs now and literally trialing them probably in every ICU in the country that has any population of COVID patients. They're trying new things to see what's working and what's not working. I will say uh, at our hospital in the ICU, we have not lost a patient. So whatever they're doing is doing amazing. Uh, and then uh, we've had so many downgrades from there too. They, they first they'll go to usually the telemetry unit, which is a monitored unit, just keep an eye on their heart if they need it. They don't all need that. Uh, if they don't, then they'll come down to med surge. And we have, so today looking at my census, I have, I think I have eight positive patients and I have no more pending as of the moment. Uh, but I do see there was a couple in the emergency department that were possible admits to come up. So wow. it's hard to average a day. Like I couldn't say, oh, every day we have this many possible COVID positive patients and this many positive because it does change with people discharging to home um, or patients just coming up negative and moving out to another unit. So we try to keep them separated as well. Like we have one, we call them pods, they're units. Um, one pod that's rule out only and one pod that's positive only. So um, if they could become positive on the rule out, they'll move over to the positive pod, so. Going back to the media piece, Melissa, what is that like for you, you know, seeing different things online and obviously Trump is very loud and proud about, about the medication. <laughs> what are, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on some of that? Um, I don't really want to get too political because I don't really think that any of them are doing any help. Um, when it comes to like, what should people be doing to treat or how they, people should care for one another. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that they have done a really good job as leaders. I, prime ministers, presidents, whoever they may be, um, have had left us in the dark too long about this. So, um, I don't necessarily trust them in that, in that regard. Right. Um, but I do trust in the doctors that they have working for them. Like listening I, yes. to their recommendations, Dr. Fauci in the United States is, I mean, he won a Nobel Prize back in the 80s. Like he is a very, very intelligent man, um, regardless of who he works for. <laughs> he is <he's> very <laughs> intelligent. Um, and I, I would trust him to tell me what to do with these patients and how to, how to best provide the care for them. And for your families, because I think what's frustrating for me on being in the unit and seeing these patients and knowing that like there's whole families affected, whole communities affected by this and people didn't think it was anything. And that's why this, now this whole community has been affected by this and they've lost a lot of lives and it's people going out and thinking that they can protest together or um, that they can, you know, reopen everything and get life back to where it was before this. We were lucky that we didn't catch something before this. You know, in hindsight, I think personally, I don't foresee any need to have large groups congregated anymore when everything that we're doing right now via phone or via Zoom meetings or, you know, what's being put out over any sort of media, I think, should replace these large groupings because this is only one small virus, but it could be the start of many. And the way that things migrate, like the way the flu 
changes every year. We have to change our flu vaccines every year because the flu changes just like super viruses like MRSA and all those things that we just, we can't always mitigate them and we can't do it quickly enough that we can stop it. And this is kind of, to me, I feel like it's a warning. As scary well, as it is, it doesn't feel like a warning because it's people are dying of this, but it's a warning to what could be there. Well, and I think you see it every, every day in, in where you go to work, where a lot of people have never been exposed to this. So this is their big eye opener to this, right? So that you can't turn a blind eye anymore. Yeah. Um, so speaking of families and affecting communities, it's really affected your family too, because you've made a lot of sacrifices, personal sacrifices during this. So can you talk to yeah. me a bit more about that? Sure. So luckily I had um, the week off, the week that it all kind of started to change at the hospital. So uh, Ariel was out of school and I was off because we were going to go out to California. Obviously we didn't go. Um, so we stayed and hung out kept our social distancing. We didn't really go anywhere. Um, we did a lot of walks, did a lot of painting, a lot of fun stuff. And then I took her to her grandma's house, which is just out in Sun City, so not far from here. Um, and she's been out there ever since because I don't want to go to work and bring her home. Yeah. Yeah. So you haven't seen, like physically seen her for quite some time. Uh, no, it'll be four weeks. Oh, wow. Sunday. Yeah, and that's, I mean, true for so many healthcare providers that they just can't see their family now. No, and it's not just children. It's like parents or siblings or cousins or whoever you may live with. Because, I mean, so many people live with their, you know, even grandparents for that matter. So um, I have another one of my nurses. He's got a baby who is, I think she's 15 months now. So her and his wife have moved in with um, her parents while well, he's still working and uh, another nurse on another unit gave her babies to her their grandma too and uh, another one my nurses moved into a hotel luckily it was paid for by Hilton thank you um, wow so she's there for she moved in there last week I think because she lives with her elderly either grandparents or parents I'm not 100% sure but to keep them safe she moved into the hotel and uh, I have a couple other people who um, I know I made sure that they got the number for the hotel so that if they felt they needed to go there, that it was an opportunity for them um, to get away and make sure that their, their family was safe. One of them had built a shed in the backyard and put an air conditioning unit in there and everything. Wow. Unbelievable. I so many people, you know, we're, we're safe and at home and we're not, we're not seeing it. And so right. what we don't see, we sometimes don't feel or don't believe. And so, um, we, we get different things on the media, like this drug is apparently working. And then you think, okay, well, I'd like to get back to reality. And you're not actually seeing the, the severity of this. So what would you say to people who are kind of buying into some of the, the, the wrongful media that's being put out and buying into the, like, let's just take our chances and, and get out there. Um, hmm. Tough question and putting out this. That is a tough question. No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, my initial gut reaction is don't believe the media. It's all truly false to some extent. Only believe a quarter of it from any source. Um, just because, you know, it's all propaganda. A lot of it's propaganda. And we learned that, I think, the hard way because the reason we didn't know about this sooner or react sooner is because the media, people kept it from us. So um, 
that just makes me more more tainted towards media than yeah and you you live in america too which i mean we yeah we have oh my god yeah yeah right anyways go ahead (laughs) yeah it's so complicated for sure because there's because there's like i was saying like there's a small truth to each of those stories but you've got large news companies that are more focused on thinking donald trump should go through impeachment again right now well you have a bigger crisis on your hands you have a pandemic happening that people are dying every single day and you're worried about impeaching Trump, he's not killing them. Like, <laughs> that's the problem. Your focus is should, should not be there. Your focus should be on how do, we, how do we make sure, not just this country, but Canada and North America, for that matter, make sure that in six months from now, we're not still in the same position we are today. Mm-hmm. So how do we help prevent that? So that's through, like communicating with each other, um, people who are maybe not making the smartest choices, if you know them, maybe educating them a little bit more. I don't know how you educate the masses, but um, it's I just lack of knowledge. Of right. I think it starts with conversations, them. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I, I, it's not that I don't go out. If I have to go to the store, I'm going to go to the store. Uh, am I going to wear a mask? Yes. I'm going to wear a mask. Am I going to wear gloves? No. There's nothing, I'm not going to pick it up with my hands and, and put them, you know, dig out food of my teeth when I'm out in public. That's not going to happen. Um, because A, I'm more aware of it. B, I've got my mask on. And I think everybody that's out there should be wearing a mask. I told mom the other day, she said that they had gone to the early seniors hour at Walmart. And I said, do you guys have a mask? And she's like, no. So I said, you should be wearing a mask. Like every time you go out anywhere, you should be wearing a mask. Gloves, you don't necessarily need as long as you make sure you wash your hands and you have sanitizer readily available all the time. Um, and stay home if you can. Like, and stay home if you can. Limit, that's like, the biggest you thing. You need too. to go out. Buy more than what you need so you don't have to go out again in two days. Buy it so that you don't need to go out for like a week. Mm-hmm. You know, because my husband likes to eat out. <laughs> so he's at home working. Uh, and he was like, staying the other day, he was going to go get this thing from the drive through which I, I don't mind supporting local businesses. I think it's okay. They, everybody's suffering to some extent. And there's been no known transmission through food as long as it's hot when you eat it. Um, so I said, that's okay. But when you go, buy three or four so you're not going back tomorrow. Because that person at the drive through and I'm going to just throw this random number out there, if that person was exposed to four people and maybe those four people could or couldn't have had it, then you only see him one day, that's only four or five people that you've been exposed to. If you go every day, then that's four people or five people times three or four or five days. So it's exponential, the exposure you could have by just one drive through a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, if you're going to go, just get what you need. And then I don't mean to stockpile. I don't think you need to run out and buy all the toilet paper in the store, but oh, you need enough for a couple weeks, get enough for a couple weeks. You don't need any more than that. So, so what's more mindful of what we do, what we do when we're a in public and even be at home, you know, like I don't want him to get it. He's sharing the house with me still. So I have, um, you know, always wiping down things, making sure that we separate as much as possible, sleeping in separate beds. Um, we sleep, we sit in the same room to watch TV, but we are about six feet apart. So, Mm. Yeah, really good points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But on the front lines, I will say not being there to me is scarier than being there. Right. That's because you, you awesome nurses, you've got it. Like you, you'd go crazy if you weren't doing your part, you know, and Kristen, I've witnessed her, uh, her passion for nursing too. And I just like, I can't thank you guys enough for, you know, jumping out of bed to go to put yourself and your families at risk to save lives. Like it, it really is amazing. You know, when you start nursing, you never think that something like this is, you know, you expect the military to have to do things like this. Yes. You don't always think as a nurse that you would have to do this, but um, when it comes down to it, that's, you know, you got into nursing for a calling and this is, I guess it. Yeah. A friend of mine, she's working nonstop between different communities. And, you know, she had one of those moments where she's like, I'm, I am not well, like this is awful every single day. It is something different. I don't know what to expect. Everything changes. And, um, yeah, she just said like, I, I, I don't know if I signed up for this. I, I don't know if I would have signed up for this, but um, like she, she took some time and kind of sat in that for a bit and just felt the feelings that I think a person needs to feel when you guys are facing this. And then of course, in that true spirit that drove her to nursing in the first place, gets mm -hmm. up, gets back to work and it, you know, and is back, back in action. It's yeah. 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 And I do feel like at least you feel like you're doing so, and I'm not at the bedside. I'm, I'm frontline as in, I care for the people that care for these patients. Um, I'm, am I in rooms doing things? Yes, absolutely. I love starting IVs, drawing blood, anything like that, that needs to be done. And I'm a hundred there to hundred percent there to support the staff with whatever their needs may be. Um, I think every single one of them have my cell phone number. Um, sometimes they text me too much. Sometimes they don't text me enough, you know, <laughs> but I, when I'm there, I'm there. I'm out on the floor as much as I possibly can be um, and help managing too, like the movement of these patients to make sure that they're ending up in the right place that they need to be. Because if they're negative and they're on a rule out pod, they need to be moved right away Right. because mm -hmm. we don't want to cross contaminate them at all. Like we want them to be safe too. So that there's so many things to consider. <laughs> well, you, you talked about, um, you're on lots of committees and you're, thinking about things that we would never even consider about what to do with bodies and what to do, like all of these things that I mean, yeah. never considered six months ago. Right. Right. Well, and it's weird too, because so six months ago we were so full, this hospital was like breaking the seams open. We have so many patients coming in through the door on a daily basis, like whether it was for scheduled surgeries or procedures or just coming in through the ED, um, we were so, so full. And then the moment that this hit, like I was saying, our senses pretty much dropped in half. Um, so we have a lot of units that are closed. We have a lot of nurses that have to be um, redeployed to other areas. Um, luckily, we've been able to maintain um, jobs for everybody. So. I don't think every healthcare company or conglomerate within even Arizona has been able to do that. I know there's been physicians taking um, pay cuts, uh, people being furloughed uh, for up to like three, four months from their jobs. And that's within healthcare systems. That's not within just the community, like other businesses or other companies. Um, one big moneymaker is even doing that. Their physicians took a pay cut and they're um, furloughing people and they're pushing back 
people who got hired into their system before this started, they're pushing back their start dates. They're not hiring them on right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, big, big, big changes. Um, luckily, our company has been super supportive. We've got so many different things that people can do. So I have, if I might just expand a little bit, I'll try not to talk too much, but I have a pregnant nurse. And while we don't know what pregnancy and COVID would do together, we don't really want to find out. So um, she went to, I had, we had her go to her physician to get a note to say that she couldn't work on the unit um, in her current pregnancy state. So we got that approved through um, HR. And now she's been working with like infection prevention. So making sure that people are donning and doffing the prop, the PPE properly and watching like hand hygiene, just making sure that everything is being done the best that we can within our facility to make sure we're not helping with the spread of this disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bunch of people that are in the same position as her, either pregnant or have low immune systems for whatever reason that may be. Um, and we've been able to offer them alternate positions to help them still have a job at a time. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and for our listeners who are typically Canadian, this is a different system Very more than, than Canadian for sure. But yeah. 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 It's definitely different, but similar to um, healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, patient care is patient care. Exactly. All the jobs I've ever had, it doesn't matter where I've worked. Um, the patient, the care you provide the patient is the same in any hospital, any system, any country. Yeah. The patient is always first. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think all of the jobs that the staff are doing, whether they're pulled away from the bedside now, or if they're there, it's all ultimately to keep patients safe and to help them with whatever their problems may be, whether it's COVID related or something else. Right. Yeah. We even have nurses redeployed to tents at the front. So I don't know if they're doing that in Canada, but we have, tents um at every entrance of the hospital which there are multiple um and so they have it manned by uh nurses and everybody who comes into the hospital uh for employees they don't get their temperature check but they get a mask and they get asked if they have symptoms which is like fever uh fever chills shortness of breath anything like that and diarrhea even has been another thing that we've been asking um, before they're allowed to enter the building and ED patients, they get their temperature scanned and a mask put on immediately as soon as they pull up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, that's been going on for three weeks. I think now they've had tents everywhere, which has been good. And then they just yesterday, uh, decided that everybody in the building has to wear a mask at all times when you're in the hallways. The only place you can take it off is like in your office or bathroom or whatever lounge. So, Melissa, Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, obviously this is a scary time, but what makes you most hopeful during this time? I think the progress I've seen in these patients, like it, the not knowing what's there is scarier than knowing what is there. Um, Like I said, people who, you know, say for my staff, for example, there's one gentleman, he was off for like a week and he was so afraid to come back. He's like, I don't know. He didn't know what he was walking into. And so for me, the, the way I put it to him is I'm more scared to walk into the grocery store than I am to walk into the hospital because I know that at this hospital, they're doing the best that they can for each of these patients. And I think that's proven 
by our success rate of treating them. Um, and through these multidisciplinary rounds that I call into every day and by the staff that are so proud to be owning these patients. Um, and we have the PPE that we need, the personal protective equipment um, to stay safe. So the progress of patients from the ICU to either telemetry or med surge and then the workup to get them home and knowing that they were so sick that they could have died when they came in two weeks, three weeks ago, and here they're walking out and they're going to be okay. There's hope. That's great. So lastly, yes. thank you so much for, for talking with us. We always ask this question about what is your why? Why do you risk your health for others to be, you know, for others to be safe at home? Um, why do you get up in the morning? What is your why? Um, I think it's for my staff. It's, so initially when I started nursing, um, I didn't always, you know, like I said, I didn't always know I wanted to be a nurse. It wasn't like a passion that started. I had to follow the stream. It's something that I fell into and then it, it you know, encompassed me. So first I started with caring for patients. Then my role changed to manager. So now I care for the people that care for the patients. Uh, the reason I get up and go to work every day and sometimes night um, is for them. Mm -hmm. They need someone to support them. And uh, that's who I am right now. Oh, Melissa, thank you so much. Is there anything in closing, any, you know, the one thing you really wish people would take away from hearing your story today? I think people just still need to social distance as much as the government may allow um, businesses to reopen and uh, things to kind of get back to normal. There's no, there's, it'll be a new normal. It won't be ever normal, what we know of normal. Um, there should always be the new normal. So it's just being more aware of what you're doing, uh, where you're going, how close you are to people. Not that you can't be with your loved ones and families, but um, just be aware that if the government says or the media says, yeah, it's okay to go do this, that doesn't mean you all have to get together and have a big party and share all your chicken pox. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for saying that. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not chicken pox. That's one thing. <laughs> well, thank right. you so much, Melissa. And we wish you all of the, the safety and the stamina. And we hope you're taking some self-care and some moments for yourself too. And we really appreciate everything that you're, you and, and all of the nurses alike are doing all over the world. It's gotta, it's gotta be scary though. Even, you know, when you say you walk through the hospital and you feel good and safe about being there, it's gotta be tough. And, and thank you so much. And thank, thank you so much to our listeners and remember to reach out and let us know what you think of our cast. Feel free to send in questions, or if you have an idea of somebody that you'd like to hear on the identity project of my Why podcast, please let us know. And again, thanks to all of the professionals and essential workers out there who are putting themselves at risk for people like us. So thanks, Melissa. We wish you all the best and we will talk to you, our listener, next Wednesday. Thank you. Stay safe. <laughs>